Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. What's up, everybody? Josh Darrow here with another episode of Behind the U. We'll be joined by Coach Mark Richt in just a second. But first, he's also coming out with a new book. It's called Make the Call, Game Day Wisdom for Life's Defining Moments. Available today for pre-order everywhere books are sold. Great stories from his time at Georgia and the University of Miami. Some of those we'll try and dive into today, but the book will have plenty of other details as well. The book will relive some of the greatest moments and reveal the life lessons Coach Rick has discovered along the way. Get Make the Call by Mark Rick. Everywhere books are sold. It releases August 31st, 2021. Hopefully I can get some good stories out of him as well. Here we go. Behind the U with head coach Mark Rick. Another edition of Behind the U as we are going to be joined by both a former player and also a former coach, Mark Richt. And uh, he joins us now to tell us a bunch of stories about his journey and take us behind the U. Coach, welcome. Glad to talk to you again and glad to reconnect. Thank you, Josh. I'm glad to be on the show. We'll get into you being a part of the media, you know, ACC Network talking head guy. But I want to take this back to the beginning, so to speak. You commit to the University of Miami, I believe, in 1979 as a quarterback out of Boca High. But that Miami wasn't this Miami. That Miami wasn't the Miami that everyone came to love after the first championship and all the championships after that. So what was that Miami like? What was the Miami you committed to all the way back then? I was a class of 78. So 79 was my freshman year. At that time, Coach Saban was there. And it wasn't Nick Saban. It was Lou Saban. Uh, he was there a short time for two seasons. But he recruited one heck of a class. Had a bunch of guys that uh, I think we had 29 signees and like 26 of them played some form of uh, NFL or USFL or some kind of pro ball really signed a great class and uh, I'll never forget my roommate early on was Mark Cooper and also we had Clem Barberino and Jim Kelly we were all together in a room once we moved into the uh, apartments but before that it was just me and Cooper at the 960 dorm you know I played quarterback he played tight end in the beginning and uh, we always laugh about our first pregame speech by Coach Saban. We were playing Colorado at Colorado. If you didn't know, he had coached at the Denver Broncos at one time. He was like, man, I got a lot of people that I know here and a lot of friends. He goes, just don't go out there and embarrass, him, and, and embarrass <laughs> me today. <laughs> we were like, oh, wow. That was the speech. So we just, it was kind of welcome to college football. University of Miami style. So, you know, you talk to, to people uh, that have committed to Miami, you know, over the years and kids that have grown up in this area. It's a dream to play at the University of Miami. So back then, I know times were different. Was that your dream to be at Miami? Or was it just your dream to play college ball? Well, it was my dream to play college ball. And I wanted to go somewhere where I thought I could play early. And uh, going back to Coach Saban, I remember being in his office before signing date. The Miami Herald had all the commitments in the paper to that point. And there was a guy named Mike Rodriguez that said quarterback slash defensive back. And I'm like, coach, what's up with this guy? I thought I was your man. You know, I was going to come save the program. And he goes, oh, don't worry about him. He goes, you said slash, he's going to play DB. Well, as it turned out, he's, he played quarterback. But anyway, 
And then I go, well, what about this guy, Jim Kelly from East Brady, Pennsylvania? I go, there's quarterback, no slash next to his name. I go, what's up with him? Well, he goes, well, someone's got to back you up. And I'm like, oh, nice one. That's a good yeah, line. I was, yeah, I was like, good thinking, coach. But uh, we all know what happened there, too. <laughs> Tell me the first time you saw Jim Kelly on the practice field. What was that like? You know what? We were all very competitive. Me, Mike, and Jim were all quarterbacks. At the same time, we were all rookies together. But, uh, you know, Jim was a guy that the uh, thing I re probably remember the most about him was what a beautiful deep ball the guy could throw. I was kind of jealous of that. You know, that, that freshman year, we played Penn State at Penn State. Coach Schnellenberger, well, excuse me, I guess that must have been our second year. Yeah, I think, I think Jim would have been a redshirt freshman. Anyway, long story short, Jim got the start, and we beat Penn State at Penn State, and then he became the guy from then on. Jim was a great player, tough, hard-nosed guy. He was recruited as a linebacker at Penn State, but he wanted to play quarterback, and Miami promised him that, and, you know, the rest is history. Maybe you kind of wish it said LB next to his name when you walked in the coach's office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now Don Bailey Jr. is a good friend of, of both of ours, and you mentioned Howard Schnellenberger, and he swears, you know, by the genius and greatness of Howard Schnellenberger, and he'll go through his resume, special teams coach, OC, Bear Bryant, 72 Dolphins, 83 Canes, Louisville, et cetera. I mean, he speaks with a, a deep passion about Coach Schnellenberger. As a, someone who played for him, as someone who has been a head coach, do you share the same sentiment? What made him special? Why was he great? Well, you know, he had already won the Super Bowl with the Dolphins as the offensive coordinator the, the year they went undefeated. You know, still the only undefeated season in the NFL. You know, he was coaching under Don Shula. And then, and then he came from there to becoming our coach. And so he brought a lot of the Miami Dolphins system dumbed down a little bit for us in the college ranks. And he was probably ahead of his time when it came to the passing game, you know, in the collegiate ranks. Of course, Bernie Kosar was the first guy to really take advantage of that and, um, you know, win a national championship with it. But he just was very demanding. He kind of came from the Bear Bryant tree. He's a tough, hard-nosed guy, but he knew ball. And, uh, and he, he was good at laying a dream out there. You know, he, he, he was a big dreamer. And uh, he got us all to believe that we could be great. And, you know, by the time he left there, like I mentioned, you know, Bernie Kozar won that, was the quarterback of the national championship team, uh, coaches, uh, I guess his fourth season there at Miami. Don has talked about that as well, the dream, the vision, you know, making people believe, especially at a time when maybe there wasn't a reason to believe, at least, you know, going maybe back to when he took over. When did you as players believe? I mean, you obviously, I know you weren't on the 83 team, but you were part of the, you were part of the team and the program that built towards that. When did it kind of turn? Well, I, I think that we were always, you know, as young guys, we were big dreamers. You know what I mean? We, we believed in big that things could happen. Like I remember, I think it was Coach Nelberg's first year. I think he said our goal is a bowl. You know, it was nothing unbelievable, but it was something where the Miami hadn't been in a while. And, and sure enough, we ended up going to a bowl at the end of the year, a peach bowl, whatever it was. The things that he would say would start to come true. And before you know it, he had everybody truly believing that anything was possible there. Now, true. Well, I guess it's true, but I just need you to, to, to verify it. Don would tell stories that you could play a game and it wouldn't go well. And the next day you would be practicing in pads. Oh, yeah. Well, that happened after we lost to Florida State one year. I actually played in that game and we got beat. And we had practice the next day and uh, full pads, everybody rocking and rolling. You know, I think and one time I think we were practicing in the middle of a 
a hurricane watch, you know, it just didn't matter to coach. He didn't have that horn to blow and say you had to go in because of light possible lightning in the area. He didn't, he didn't care. We were truly, we used to feel bad for the, the video guys because, you know, they'd be up there like a lightning rod. Coach Stellenberger wasn't going to stop practice for anything. You mentioned about him being ahead of his time from a passing game standpoint. And that's kind of one of the big storylines of that 83 national championship. Where were you for that game? Yeah, I'm trying to remember where I was at the time. I was probably in Boca Raton, Florida, my hometown, watching that thing on TV. So as you watch that, I guess that's it's surprising to a lot of people nationally, probably not surprising to you as a former player and also a former quarterback under him. Well, obviously, being just one one year out of it, you know, you know, everybody, you know, one of the things I remember was Jay Brophy and just how bad his ankle was bummed up that year. And the thing what he would go through to just play week after week after week. I don't think we hadn't recruited to the point where we were just this powerhouse of guys. It was just a bunch of guys that developed well under Coach Nellenberger. And again, everybody believed. Just a bunch of tough, hard-nosed guys that were going to get after it. And we had enough playmakers. I think Eddie Brown was on that team. And Bernie was just uncanny in his ability to process information and deliver the mail, you know. I don't know if there was anybody that was just first-round drafting material, or not many anyway, not like it became. Coach, the next step is kind of the career's over from a playing standpoint. When did coaching become a consideration for you? You know, I always thought I was going to be a player. I thought I was going to be an NFL player. And I, I had a couple shots, you know, one with the Denver Broncos and uh, when John, when John Elway was there, of course. And then the next trout I had was with the Miami Dolphins. Marino was there. So, you know, I saw Kelly, I saw Marino, I saw, I saw Elway up close, you know, and I mean, sooner or later they tell you, you're not good enough anymore and you better go find something else to do. And one of the last things I did with the Dolphins before I got cut was uh, take a test about all the information we had learned at that point. It was like on a Friday or something. Then we had a little scrimmage with, uh, I think, the Saints. That next Monday, Dave Shula said, hey, I got good news and bad news. I go, okay, what's what's the good news? He said, um, well, that test you took, you did as good as, as good or better than anybody, you know, in the room. Was, you did a great job. I go, great. What's the bad news? He says, you got to get your playbook and go see my dad. And uh, so that meant I was getting cut. And uh, so I got cut there. So I guess the seeds got planted that, you know, I knew football. I loved football, loved the strategy of it, couldn't play it anymore. And I really was very impressed with Don Shula and Dave, too, as the type of men they were and how they went about their life. And, and they could still be highly successful at the you know highest level of football. Don Shula, maybe the greatest coach ever. I was like, you know what? That's appealing to me. So uh, after a bunch of stints with things like parking cars and bartending and trying to be a life insurance agent and all these other things, I, I've either failed at or got fired at. I said, maybe I'll try coaching. So that's when I put some resumes out. I actually was going to go to LSU as a graduate assistant. I was going to ask you, was there another school you tried to get onto before Florida State? I wrote letters to about five schools, maybe 10 schools that I thought I'd be interested in. And the ones that came back positive, one was South Carolina. And uh, Earl Morrill had known the head coach there. I think his name was Morrison, if I'm not mistaken, or Morris. But there was a connection there because Coach Earl Morrill was our quarterback's coach. And he was one of the guys that wrote me a letter of recommendation. 
But then uh, Bill Arnsbarger, I believe, was the head coach at LSU at the time. Of course, he was the defensive coordinator when the Dolphins went undefeated. He had that Snellenberg connection, that Miami Dolphin connection. And I think Mike Archer was there, too, at the time, who had been in Miami earlier. So I, I had had my U-Haul packed, ready to go to LSU. And the night before, I drove to Baton Rouge. I got a phone call from Coach Bowden asking me to be a graduate assistant coach at Florida State. They had just had a situation where he hired Brad Scott from the graduate assistant position to a full-time position. And Art Baker, his quarterback's coach, left to be the head coach at East Carolina. So he needed a quarterback's coach, but he, he didn't have a full-time position available. So he needed a GA to help him coach the quarterbacks. And so that's that's kind of the offer I got is, hey, you can, you can help me, me being Coach Bowden, to coach these quarterbacks as a graduate assistant. In reality, what happened was he went to the first day of the QB meeting with me, kind of followed me around that day, and then he never came back. I just I became I became the quarterbacks coach as a graduate assistant. So how did Coach Bowden find you, or how did you find him? How did it even be that he would call you? Well, he recruited me out of high school, knew me out of high school, and then he knew I played at Miami, and Miami was the arch rival. And he had a lot of respect for the passing game that Miami had. And, you know, Coach Bowden was more – play at run play action pass guy and coach Nellenberg was more of a pro system or drop back pass and those concepts and pass in those protections and things and so I had enough of a working knowledge of that system that I was intriguing to coach Bowden so how was it running your own room at a young age well I didn't know any better I didn't know it was a special thing I came to know that later it's probably better that way right yeah it was ignorance is bliss for sure but uh you know I was coaching one guy, Eric Thomas, I think was maybe one year younger than me. Danny McManus was maybe two years younger than me, maybe three. I mean, I think I was 25 and Eric Thomas, I think was 23, 24. But anyway, the thing about coaching I learned is if you, if you know just a little bit more than the players, they, um, they respect you enough to where you can help them become better, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I was just a graduate assistant who got a lucky break, but over time I made enough suggestions that made sense that some of my ideas got implemented. And over, over time I got to, I just got more um, credibility with everybody. In doing some research for this coach, I mean, you know, I mean, it's probably well-documented, right? The picture from 82 Miami with you and Vinny and Bernie, but in, in doing some research for this, you had a room in 1989 at Florida state that, that they say, if you read it from Tallahassee's perspective, is almost as good as anybody's in the country. I think it was Peter Tom Willis, Casey Weldon, Brad Johnson, who you're now family with. Was Charlie Ward in that room too? Well, here's what we had. We had Brad and Casey, and they were seniors. And then we had Charlie Ward and Kenny Felder. And, of course, Brad won a Super Bowl. Casey was a runner-up to the Heisman. Charlie Ward won the Heisman. Kenny Felder was a first-round draft pick in baseball. He left early. And then the other guy, who was a true freshman, was Chris Winkie before he went to play pro baseball. So you had two Heisman Trophy winners, a Super Bowl guy, a guy that was a runner-up to the Heisman, and a first-round draft pick in baseball, all on the same team at the same time. Where's that picture? Uh, well, it used to be on my wall, but we've got a copy of it. I'm, I'm looking at the Miami one right now. It's, it's up in our uh, home right now. That, that other one, is a, it's a good question why I don't have that one. To be honest with you, i got to reframe it. 
Well, the thing that I guess that stood out to me is, you know, obviously this is a Miami framed podcast, but just in doing that, you're like, you know what, for all the attention that 82 room gets, that room you just mentioned, that that holds up pretty good too. Well, when you look at it, you know, the 82 room, as you mentioned, I'm looking at it right now. On the right's Bernie Kozar. He wore number one in that picture. Then I'm, I'm next to him. Earl Morrill, the quarterback's coach. Then Jim Kelly. Then Kyle Vanderwin, who's from Palm Beach Gardens. And then Vinny Testaverde, number 18, on the left side. So four, four first-round draft picks, if you count Earl Morrill, who was a Michigan State guy, who was a first-round draft pick. And then you had me. And you had Kyle, you know, everybody, everybody want to know what we were doing in that. <laughs> so your time at Miami did not cross as much with Vinny in that group, but were you able to see enough of him to know uh, that he would be what he became? Well, it was funny, you know, Jim and I were going to be seniors and they, they, when they were freshmen, uh, you'd have that first scrimmage of the year and you, you know, you always let your rookie quarterbacks have a drive. And uh, I can't remember who went first. Uh, I think it might've been Bernie and, he went just bing, 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 maybe six out of six, six out of seven, touchdown pass. Then Vinny got a drive and did this, basically the same thing. And we were just looking at these guys going, wow, because they were both, you know, six, five. I was six, one. Jim's probably six, three. These guys were big. And of course, Vinny was an Adonis physically and Bernie wasn't quite as yoked up as, as, as Vinny, but obviously super, super talented guys that uh, came in right away and were so impressive. We were lucky to be getting out of town there before they grew up. (laughs) In terms of offensive philosophy at Florida State, as you grow into being the offensive coordinator, you are known for that kind of fast break offense. Where did that get rooted? Before the 92 season, which was Charlie, Charlie Ward's first season as a starter, Coach Bowden and we as a staff decided that our two minute drill would be in the shotgun. And not only would it be in the shotgun, but it was going to be in a no no back set. And the film was most people play prevent when you're in the one minute drill anyway, or two minute drill. So let's get in the shotgun. Let's go spread it out and just you know try to pick our way down the field. Well, Charlie had a propensity for throwing interceptions early in his career. He threw four in his first game against Duke, threw four touchdowns. Game two, played Clemson, threw four more interceptions. And we got behind late, and we had to get into the one-minute drill or the two-minute drill. And we get in the gun, and we go right down the field, score a touchdown. Bang, 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 touch. And we ended up coming back, winning that game. And then actually against Miami, uh, we had similar situation where we got behind, and we got in the two-minute drill and went down the field. But Miami, you know, brought a couple different blitzes, and we, and we had no back in the backfield. And in the middle of the game, we had to start putting the back in the backfield and just kind of morphed our way into – Doing it, but you know, we had success in this fast paced shotgun offense. He did great. And I quite frankly got to give my wife a lot of credit in this one because after that game, she said, You know, Charlie, you know, does so good in that fast break offense. Why don't you just start the game in it? I'm like, That's a novel thought. So that offseason, we put our entire offensive system into this no huddle system. So we visited actually Jim Kelly and the Buffalo Bills were no huddling. Sam Weich was no huddling at the Cincinnati Bengals. And we went to see uh, Sam Ritigliano at Liberty University because they were doing a lot of that as well. And so we got our entire system ready to go, fast break, no huddle from the very beginning. And that was the 93 season where Charlie won the Heisman and we won the Coach Bowden's first national championship. Was it fun when, you do, when you're doing that tinkering in the offseason, when you're visiting, you're researching, you're experimenting? I mean, you, as a football coach, that's got to be like, that's the purest form of, of being in the game. Yeah, it was. I mean, we 
you can be stubborn and say, this is our system. And if you can't run it, we'll find somebody else who can, or you can realize you got something special and let's, let's do what this guy can do. And let's, you know, not be afraid to be in a, innovative. And, you know, coach Bowden had a leap of faith just to allow us, you know, we, he started to allow us to call plays in 92 for the first time in his career, he wasn't calling plays and he allowed us to do that in the off season and, and make this system fit Charlie. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I don't have these numbers exact, but again, doing a little research, I want to say maybe your last year as the OC, 40 plus points a game, 550 yards at a time, which now no one would blink an eye at, right? But we're taught this is 20 something, 20 to 25 years ago. And I find it interesting. You know, I talked to, we've had Brock Berlin on this podcast. We've had Rhett Lashley on this, on this podcast. And, and they've been a part of sort of systems that have innovated but at the time, maybe not everyone knew what was happening. This day and age, it's, it's everywhere. 25 years ago, that's not the case. Yeah, the other thing that we were allowed to do that was really, really effective was, you know, nowadays if offense subs, you know, the referee will stand over the ball and let the defense sub. Offense subs, defense can sub. Well, back then, they didn't have that rule. So we would be maybe in an I-formation type personnel group two receivers, a tight end, two backs, tailback, fullback. We might be out there in the middle of the no huddle in that personnel group. So they're in base defense. But what we would do is we'd be getting ready to, we'd be getting ready to bring in uh, a full receiver set and get rid of the tight end and fullback. And what we would do is wait till the play clock got down to about 10 seconds. And then we'd say, go. So the play was already called to the players on the field and the guys on the sideline knew the play. We'd say, go fullback tight end ran off the field. Two receivers ran on the field. The defense would either be stuck in base defense against our four receiver set, or if they tried to sub, they'd sit there, they'd be there with 13 men on the field because by the time we got on the field ready to snap the ball, they were in transition. And the same thing was true if we ran a big play and four receiver set and ended up on the two yard line, one yard line, we, we, we might just go big immediately, sprint them on the field, sprint the other guys off the field. And while the other team's trying to get their goal line defense in there, we'd snap the ball. They would not be ready. And we just knock the ball in and probably get a. They'd probably have a penalty, you know, again, for not being able to get their people on and off the field quick enough. So they basically changed the rule because of some of the things we were doing. You know, it just was, it truly wasn't fair to the defense, but we didn't care much about that. So you mentioned Trev Alberts before. And again, we're, we'll talk about Miami stuff. And, and, and some of this is, is nostalgic because if you're if you're tied to Miami, you're sort of tied to Florida State. I mean, you are specifically, but if you follow the programs that, and when I get ready to do UMFSU games, you, you think about all the great players that have come through both sides and the finishes and the epic battles. So, you know, I know one of the things you talk about at Miami is the green tree and the battles and the competition, et cetera. So as you are the OC at Florida State, who are the guys that you were like, that guy's trouble? Well, Deion Sanders was the best player I've ever seen in person, I would say, uh, and an unbelievable competitor, a guy in the offseason that would make all of his teammates work hard all summer, not just lay around and be a bum type deal. And uh, he was great. Mar Marvin Jones was unbelievable. Derek Brooks was on. You know, we had Marvin Jones, a linebacker, and when he left, we're thinking there'll never be another Marvin Jones, and then Derek Brooks was next. And, and he, he was amazing. Corey Simon was a great defensive player. Uh, you know, Warwick Dunn was special. Charlie, whether you, yes, defense, I'm sorry. I'm just saying, so, Jeff, yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're going through one, ones versus ones in camp and 
you know, it's like, oh man, I don't want to get T Buck, you know, jumping a jumping a ball or LeBron Butler in the back end. Like you're, yeah, you you Leroy you, Butler. You, you talked about competition. You you had it. You had it as much in Tallahassee as as the guys had it down here. Yeah, I mean, we were very similar in 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 team and, and as far as just the skill set that each team had. I mean, both teams had many many first round draft picks, high draft picks. Uh, just a boatload of guys going to the NFL and making it big. Miami certainly had some teams that, you know, broke records when it came to first-round draft picks compared to everybody. But Florida State went too far behind in that category. Again, Miami, Florida State, it, it, they're so connected. And every time from Miami you think a wide right one or wide right two or any of those games, it's always through the lens of orange and green and how great it is. And, of course, we're, I'm getting ready for this. I'm like, wait a second. Mark must have experienced that just on the other side. What was it like to be uh, back in Tallahassee the next week or that off season or, you know, in the locker room? Yeah. I mean, it was uh feeling like you're being snake bit a little bit, you know, you got, there's two or three games that could have been won or tied just by a, a very reasonable field goal, you know, not very far of a kick and uh, you know, to fight your guts out to get in position to win a game. And then you just, you miss it. You know, what can you do? I mean, you, you've done everything you could do. You put yourself in position, but the guy's got to make it. And, uh, you know, if all those kicks were made, then, you know, all those national championships probably would have evened out a little bit more uh, during that time frame, but they didn't. So, you know, you don't blame one guy because there's a lot of plays in all those games that could have made the outcome different. But, uh, you know, you could certainly sit there and say, you know, what could have been for sure. But, the you know, the worst beating was not a wide, wide right or a wide left. It was the year the Seminoles had the Seminole wrap. And uh, we were preseason number one, and you know that thing got out after this after that Super Bowl shuffle they had in '85. <laughs> you know our guys decided they wanted to do this rap, and uh, we got wrapped 31 nothing in the opening game against Miami. What Miami did, you know, the really ironic thing about that game is the Super Bowl rap or the Super Bowl shuffle was what kind of motivated them to do it where uh, Jim McMahon and all those guys, the fridge and, and all those guys. And then Buddy Ryan had the uh, 46 defense, that world-famous defense that he had that year. Well, Miami used that defense to kick our butt. And it, it, was, a, it was an offseason of, you know, they put in a brand-new defense that was very much different than anything else we had ever seen. And, you know, we got caught with our pants down on that thing. We weren't, we weren't ready for it. And by the time we tried to adjust to it, it was just too late. You're also there in 2000, aren't you? That's your last year? Yes. As a coach in this rivalry, did you have a sense that Miami was, you know, what was about to happen at Miami? Could you see it sort of happening? Well, we knew they were a great team. And we, we, we knew that, you know, whoever won that game was probably going to play for the national championship for quite a few years. You know, it was a lot of healthy respect for them. Uh, it was a game that, you know, we knew we needed to win to get where we wanted to go. But, uh, you know, as you, as you remember, at one time between Miami, Florida, and Florida State, one of those three teams was going to play for the national championship. You know, and the thing about uh, at Florida State, uh, you know, we played Miami and Florida. Of course, Miami, I think, at, I think Florida dropped the game with Miami when they, when they went to the format of the SEC championship. So those two teams didn't have to play each other, but we had to play both of those state powers, which made it a little bit tougher road for us. But you also got a sense of what the OB, well, you played there too, but that night, the, or that day, actually, it was a day, it wasn't a night game, just how electric the Orange Bowl could be. Oh, yeah. And I, I remember one game, I think it was a, one of the uh, 
games that we ended up, we'd have made the field goal. It was like wide right three or something. But if we made the kick, I think we'd have, it'd have been a tie. But somebody decided it'd be a good idea to play at high noon, opening game of the year in Miami. And so literally we ran out of players on both sides. They were bringing ambulances in for IV bags for these kids. Because you know how hard they would play against each other. No, Ken Dorsey, I think, spent the night in the hospital after that game, dehydrated. I mean, that there were so many kids that were dehydrated. We had to grab running backs just to play receiver just to finish the game because our guys were washed. And But both teams were washed. The guys were cramping all over the place. It was nuts. It just it made no sense. You know, I mean, TV kind of decided when it, whether it was at noon or not, but to open the season – uh, and that, in that heat and humidity, just, I re- I'll never forget that game and how, you know, the, you, the guys would play till they dropped and literally a lot of them did. And, uh, it just goes to show what, what that game meant. As we segue sort of out of Florida state, uh, obviously your mentors, Bobby Bowden, why did players play for him? What made him Bobby? Well, he just, um, he truly loved his players. He truly loved God. Number one family number two and football number three, but he, he, he was very passionate. He's very competitive. I mean, he had a competitive spirit like nobody's business, but he, he did love people and uh, the players knew he cared very much about them. So they'd do anything for him. It just didn't matter. He, and uh, you know, we, we had a group of guys there, a staff there that probably stayed together almost a decade because he, it was, he was a good guy to work for. Everybody loved him. We didn't worry too much about our salaries and this, that, and the other. We just, enjoyed what we were doing. We were winning a lot of games and coaching great players. So it was just a, I mean, we went, we went 14 years in a row in the top four uh, in the AP poll. So we just didn't have as many national championships as we would have liked, but we certainly uh, did some great things together. And, you know, it was all because of coach Bowden. How did it come to be after 15 years in Tallahassee that it was Georgia? What was right about that? Why was that the place for you? We thought Athens, Georgia, as a city was a very good place to raise our children. You know, we thought that Georgia had a chance to win at the highest level. A lot of people were like, Hey, don't work. Don't work for coach Dooley. He's going to be in your business. He was the athletic director uh, after being, you know, the great coach that he was. And I'm like, uh, he's like a hall of fame coach. I'd, I'd, I'd like to learn something from the guy, you know, but I, I think just, uh, you know, there was a great recruiting base in that state. And uh, so you knew you could get players and uh, you knew that they had won a national championship in the past and it could happen again. So those are some of the things that went into it. And I think that uh, back in the year, five years prior, when, when Pitt offered the opportunity, I think God was telling me, you're not ready for this right now, but you need to get ready. And so in the next five years, I began to pay a little closer attention to, you know, some of the dis- head coaching decisions that coach Bowden made and try to learn, uh, a little bit more before I jumped uh, jumped on the uh, head coaching position. So what did you think was the most important part about being a head coach when you got there? And then maybe what'd you quickly learn about, well, not, not really. Th- these are actually the important things I need to be in this position as I am getting my career started. Well, you know, you mentioned going from a quarterback's coach to a coordinator. I had, I did have uh, plenty of opportunities at Florida state to become a coordinator at this place, that place, wherever it was. Almost every year in the offseason, somebody would approach me with it. But, you know, I was very happy working for Coach Bowden. My family was happy. We were winning. I was coaching guys like Charlie Ward and Chris Winkie and all those guys. So I wasn't in a hurry to take a coordinator position. 
And then as it turned out, I became coordinator at Florida State. And so even then, I was very happy doing what I was doing as a coordinator. And I didn't want to rush into a job because I know that you could you could be the best coach in America, but if you go to a school that doesn't have a chance to win, you're just beating your head against the wall and four years down the road, you're out, you know? So uh, I wanted to be very selective. Taking that job, the thing that I thought was most important was to be true to who I was. I, I couldn't be Coach Bowden. I couldn't be Coach Schnellenberger. I couldn't be, you know, anybody else. I mean, you might respect people. Like I respected Don Shula, but, you know, I didn't try to be Don Shula. And I think, you know, your players need to know that you're real, need to know you're genuine. And uh, if you're trying to be somebody or not, it takes too much energy, first of all. Second of all, you know, your players will find you out, you know. So uh, I think just, you know, believe in, in the system that you believe in and, and do it the way that you believe is the right way to do it. And for me, you know, after 86, becoming a Christian, you know, my, my life's goals changed dramatically from, you know, wanting to be this, that, or the other, you know, climbing some kind of ladder of success. That didn't become important to me. What became important to me was try to live a life on a daily basis that God would, God would be pleased with. And, and if I got promoted, I got promoted. If I didn't, I didn't. I mean, I didn't sit there and say, I got to be a head coach to be satisfied or be validated in my life. I just said, God, you know, wherever you want to take me, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And in the meantime, I'm just going to try to be obedient to you on a daily basis and see where it goes from there. If you were talking to young coaches coming up, how would you advise them on, hey, look, this is how I think it could work or should work. Obviously, you have to be true to yourself, so it's your personality. But in terms of shaping and running a program, as you've learned the successes and maybe had some failures as well, hey, this is kind of how I, I would advise it. Right. You want to have an offense and defensive and special team system that you know is sound and that you believe in. You know, we had credibility going to Georgia, at least offensively, leaving Florida State because of all the success we had. But then you also have to have, you know, certain ways you're going to go about your business. That was really a um, journey of integrity, you know, doing things within the rules, doing things in an excellent way doing things in a way that, you know, God would be honored. That was kind of how we went about our business all the way through. For example, if, if there was something that happened that we knew was wrong, whether it was recruiting or whatever it might be, you know, the philosophy for me was, you know, we're going to clean things up. We're not going to cover things up. So I know a lot of times something happens and they're like, oh, man, if this gets out, it's going to be bad. Well, for me, I was like, you know what? We did it. We're going to own it and we're going to clean it up. Then we're going to move on and do do better in the future instead of, hey, we got to cover this up. And then before you know it, everybody gets fired, you know, because, you know, your sins find you out. You know, and then when it comes to hiring, you got to hire, you know, competent people that uh, are going to be loyal to you and loyal to each other. And uh, but you want to give guys, you know, the, the, the head job is too big for one man. So, you know, you have to delegate authority. You have to hire people to do certain jobs and you got to give them the authority to carry it out. You can't give a guy a job, tell him you're the D coordinator and then micromanage him. Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. 
UBS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. You mentioned earlier about Coach Bowden that his players knew he loved him. And I always find this interesting being in the position you are as a head coach, probably even a coach that runs a room, whether it's the coordinator, even a position, right? The balance of discipline and love, because you have to have elements of discipline in your program. At the same time, you want your players to play for you, feel the love, and those kind of come from two different places. They actually don't. It's interesting you say that. The root word of what it means, the discipline means to love someone. If you discipline someone, it's because you love them. If you're a parent and you discipline your child and you correct them, you're doing it for their own good and you're doing it out of love. You're not doing it out of hate. You're not doing it to beat somebody down. The goal is to correct. And so when it came to discipline, you know, everybody kind of understood the deal. If you do this, there will be discipline for it. And once your discipline's over, it's over. You paid your penance, so to speak, and you're in good standing, you know. But uh, even as a player, if you did something wrong, you're going to own it. You're going to be disciplined for it. And then we're going to move on. You know, I, I think that players understood over time that when you give them boundaries, you're, you're not trying to do anything other than protect them and show them that you love them. So, yeah, discipline is really the evidence that you do love them and do care about them. It's just like one time I remember uh, one of my players at Georgia, I had to suspend for a ball game and they asked me, why did I suspend him? And I said, because I love him. <laughs> and they, they looked at me like I was crazy. But, uh, the, you know, the goal was to help these guys understand that you can't just do this, that, or the other just because you're a football player. you got to have accountability as a man. And, and uh, you, know, it, you know, years down the road, it'll hopefully bless you that uh, you, were, you were disciplined. I mean, I've, I've had guys call me and just thank me for loving them enough to discipline them. Yeah, I've had guys I've kicked off the team at Georgia that have come back to me years later and said, you know what, coach, thank you for doing that because I needed it. I needed to get, you know, that wake up call in my life and it, it changed my life. So yeah, discipline really means you love them. Well, I don't, I'm not sure people, maybe they do, maybe they don't understand that when you're running, when you're dealing with college athletes and I've been around it, you've been around it a lot longer, high school athletes that, you, you know, you, you, so much has been written about you and your impact on your players, as you've talked about. But probably when you become a coach and you're a father and you're a husband, when you see kids from broken homes or single parent homes or maybe they, they come in, they don't have what a lot of other people have, how much you have to help, how much you want to help and how much they probably impact you as much as you impact them to want to help make them better or even show them maybe what they don't know. You know, going back to you know, one to go to a place and not, you know, go to like when I was trying to decide to be a head coach, going to a place that I thought I would stay until they threw me out of the door, you know? Um, you know, I, I never wanted to have a team meeting to say, hey, man, I love you guys. And I really want to thank you for helping me get to where I really want to be, which is not with you. It's with, with somewhere else, you know? And so those, a lot of those guys have had men in their life leave them uh, and, and so they're, they're kind of used to that. They're not used to a, a man in their life to be there for them, to be that rock for them, to be that steady thing for them. You know, I would always tell these guys, look, I'm here. Even if a, a coordinator left, I'm like, you know, I know it hurts that he left, but look, I'm here and I'm going to take care of you guys. And I'm going to make sure I hire a guy who's going to, who's going to coach your tail off, but he's going to love you too. And just, just know I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere, you know, type thing. And I think, I think those players, you know, loved and respected that. They definitely knew 
like even the things we do in the off season, we were always doing things to try to grow them as men. Uh, we'd always do character education type stuff. We'd always do community service type stuff. I mean, in Miami, we're led the nation in community service hours and it wasn't because we're trying to get, win some trophies because I knew when these guys did something for someone else who needed their help, it changes your life. It changes how you think about things. Instead of being this selfish guy, you realize, Hey, it feels pretty good to help somebody who, who needs my help. And those guys go on, go on to go in their communities and, and become leaders in, in that area. You know, it's, you're trying to teach them life lessons. If all we do is teach them blocking and tackling and throwing and catching, in my opinion, at the collegiate level, and that's why I love the collegiate level and not the pros, was, you know, we were, we were doing them a disservice if we didn't help them grow. And the other thing, too, is I loved hiring coaches that were married with families. So, you know, a lot of our guys could see that being modeled. You know, what's it, what's it like to be a husband? You know, what's it like to be a good father? What does that look like? And, you know, because a lot of guys had never had that modeled for them. And a lot of them, you know, again, have come back and said, you know what, coach, just watching you, how you loved your wife was awesome. And watching your children respond to you was something I wanted in life. And, uh, you know, so you, you know you're making a difference when years down the road those guys will come back to you and, and say those types of things to you. I don't know how to segue into this next question. If, now as you can stand back after your three years there, it's been two years since, what do you think it requires or will take, whether, you know, for Manny to, to get it there? What, what was your plan? What was like, as you kind of came in at the beginning and said, all right, here's my, I know what it looks like, right? Oh, yeah. Here's how we're going to get there. How does it get there? Well, you know, obviously you got to recruit uh, at a level that, you know, you have the same amount of dudes as Clemson's got, you know, it's the same amount of guys that Florida State had in their heyday. Uh, you know, most recently when Jimbo won our national championship, you know, and that that's that's a tricky thing. You know, back in the day, not many guys were leaving the proximity of Miami. Not there weren't that many guys that were taking these trips all around the nation and to look at all these schools and go to all these camps and people were getting them in buses and taking them all this, that and the other. And so it was, it was a tougher sell in Miami to keep the players. And part of it was the fact that. I think Miami won so much without decent facilities. It was kind of like, why do we need new facilities? We don't need that. We just need some grass and a couple balls and let's go kick butt. But I think, you know, a lot of things happened that needed to happen. The, the dormitory situation at Miami is much better now. The, obviously, the practice facility is ex exceptional now. The meeting rooms and the uh, office, coaches' offices and the player, you know, the, I think the lock, locker rooms always need to be renovated over time. but some of the facility issues have been covered. Manny has, has, has spoke of this. You, you might have felt it when you were there, right? Manny, Miami's in such a unique spot, right? It's been a while since they've won at that level. And when they start to win, they get built up. And then when they lose, they get ripped down. And it's such a tricky, it's such a tricky seesaw to be on when the build is really not a game-to-game -game thing. Or, right, it's, it's you're building season to season to season as you recruit, develop, et cetera. Well, I mean, we won, we won 15 and we won 15 in a row while I was there. And we, I think we were number two or three in the college football playoff poll. And then Pitt beats us, right? At Pitt. And then we lose to Clemson in the, in the uh, championship game. I mean, even if we won that game, game, we might've jumped back into the playoff. We were very, very close to getting where we wanted to go. And, uh, but then again, when it didn't happen, everybody wants to say the sky's falling and, you know, we were, you know, we can't get it done, but. Um, you know, I, I just think there's got to be 
people got to understand that there has to be a little bit of patience and, you know, support to get everybody who's being recruited to feel comfortable that this is, this is where I want my son to go. This is where I want to be as a player. Everyone, I think, has a vision of raising the trophy, uh, whether it was Georgia or Miami. This is obviously, again, through the lens of Miami and putting a sixth trophy up there. But do you, can, you, can you see – I don't. obviously you can see it happening, but like I sometimes even think about, man, what, when it happens again, what that feels like, looks like. You must have had visions of that coming in as the head coach. I did not come back to Miami because it was my school. I came back to Miami because I knew Miami could win. And, and then it, it, was, it was important that it was my school, but it wasn't the main reason. Let me clarify that. It wasn't like, oh, it's my alma mater. I can't wait to go back to Miami because it's the school I went to. I mean, the, the novelty of it being my school was attractive to me, but it wasn't the main event. You know, the main event was you can, you can recruit and you can win here because it's been done before. It can be done again. Now, once I got on campus, it became much more important to me that it was my school in, you know, even in the donation I made to the indoor facility. I mean, if it wasn't my school, I, I wouldn't probably would not have done that. Or it might've been a 10th of <laughs> what I gave, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I knew Miami needed that to have any chance to compete. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna let everybody know how important it is to me and how important it is to the program by jumping on and getting everybody excited about, uh, you know, joining and helping us raise the funds. Of course, the Sofa family was, if it wasn't for them, forget it. If it wasn't for them, forget it. What do you think it'll be like, Coach, when it happens? It, it'll be, it'll be like, it'll be like the first time. It'll be like, it'd be like the first time Miami ever won a championship. It's been so long and uh, it'll be great. It'll be great. Then they'll, then, then they'll expect it the next year. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That'll be someone else's problem, though, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And let me ask you this real last. Was it hard to step? Was it easy or hard with that decision when you would decide oh, to step no. away? Gut-wrenching decision to stop, you know, because we, we loved it there. We really did. Um, my wife and I both, you know, empty nesters. We loved being in Miami. We loved being at the University of Miami. We loved the people we were working with. You know, I, did, I just was, I was really exhausted after Georgia, to be truthful, I was worn down, worn out. And I really had a plan to sit out a year and rejuvenate, and maybe get back in the game. And then, uh, then Miami came. And, uh, you know, I knew if I didn't take it right then, it wasn't going to be open the next year. And so we made the decision to do it. And I was, I made it with my eyes open. I knew there'd be a lot of heavy lifting in a lot of areas, staff, weight room, uh, all the facilities in general. I mean, just so many things needed to get done. Coaches' salaries. I mean, just there was a lot of heavy lifting, around, and I knew it. And I just jumped right in and started grinding 24-7, basically, not complaining one bit because I enjoyed every minute of it, but I just did not take care of myself good enough to where it got to the point where I was, I was just empty physically and emotionally and mentally, quite frankly. And I, I was a little bit concerned about my health. So I felt like it was in my best interest and certainly in the university's best interest that I let someone else do it. Uh, it was hard to do. Believe me, it was very hard to do. All right. Last two things. I'll let you go. You've been great coach. And I, just kind of some macro views on college football. And you kind of just mentioned being burnout or tired. And, and it's an exhausting process being a coach, whether you're the head coach or coordinator, just the way college football is, it's never ending, right? It's the season into recruiting into spring into summer into whatever. Do you think it's gotten too big? 
I don't know if it's gotten too big, but, uh, you know, and for the most part, I did a pretty good job of managing all those things, but it seemed like, especially when I had my family and, you know, my family and my kids in, when they were younger, I always made sure I'd made time for the kids and made sure I made time for family. And, and I always try to stay really well grounded in my faith and keep everything in perspective. But for whatever reason, when I got to Miami and you know, all the kids are gone and it's just me and Catherine, it was like, I could just go, 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 go. And uh, I really didn't hardly take a break at any time. And, uh, but you know, is it, I don't think college football is too big. I just think that people need to be wise in how they manage it. And it's ever changing. I mean, it, it you know, this COVID kind of made it socially acceptable to opt out, to quit midseason, to quit the bowl, to not even go to the bowl as a team. And it was all very understandable. But I'm wondering if Pandora's box has been open to where kids are just going to opt out, you know, after three games and say, I'm, I'm done on a really consistent basis. It's, going to be interesting to see, you know, this transfer portal that is exists now is going to get really loaded up. We get a one-time transfer without a penalty of weight sitting out a year. So how many guys are going to persevere through a tough time? I don't know. Uh, it's going to be, you know, what kind of lessons are going to be learned? When things get tough, quit? Maybe so. Has the sport become not too big, but it's so much is hung on the final four? Um, well, uh, obviously that, that's what a lot of people say. And, you know, are the other games worth playing? You know, maybe, they, maybe they're not. Apparently, they're not to a lot of people, a lot of players, and even this year, a lot of coaches and administrators, administrations decided, hey, we're opting out. You know, I mean, I had mentioned in a tweet that you're about to talk about that, you know, maybe, maybe you do go to a playoff system. Maybe you go 32 teams, make every, every game uh, within that system a bowl game. And so now everybody is playing for something, a shot at a national championship. I don't know if that's not where it's going to end up someday. But, uh, you know, it's going to be very, very interesting to see one year from now, if everything's normal from a health standpoint, or the year that it becomes normal again, when we're not wearing masks, we're not worried about COVID or some virus, will the majority of your team opt out of a bowl game? Will, you, will teams still opt out of bowl games because they don't want to play? Hey, coach, we don't want to play. I'm curious to see what's going to happen to the bowls and to the uh, the playoff system as it exists today. All right, sir. I will, I, will, I will leave you with that. I've taken up plenty of your time. You've told some great stories. You've taken us behind you, the you, and a couple, few other schools as well. But uh, it was a pleasure talking with you, Mark. Uh, enjoy what you, you're doing a good job doing this media thing, by the way. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm having, having a good time. It's fun to be on the team and not have to be in charge of it all the time. So. Show up, sit in front of the camera, smile, and say, tell us some good stories. There we go. Well, thank you, Josh. You have a good, have a good day. Mark, thank you.